right, everyone. Well, good morning. It's by my watch right at 10.05, and I want to get us started so that we can maximize our time with our speaker. I'm sure that others will be joining us shortly. I'm Clark Irvin. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I have had the privilege of touring Dumbarton Oaks over the years and attending occasional concerts there, and no doubt, like all of you, which is why you're here this morning, uh, I've long been captivated by it and eager to learn more about it. And so this morning, I and we were all fortunate to have with us Thomas Cummins. Dr. Cummins is the director of Dumbarton Oaks, and he's also the Dumbarton Oaks professor of the history of pre-Columbian and colonial art in the Department of Art and Architecture at Harvard. Prior to his time at Dumbarton Oaks, he served, among other things, many other things, as the director of the University of Chicago Center for Latin American Studies and as the interim director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard. He is the author, editor, or co-editor of no fewer than 10 books, the latest of which is called Sacred Matters, Animacy, and Authority in the Americas, and notably, he is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. We were also just talking about the fact that he's a member of the Patricia Phelps de Cisneros Research Institute for the Study of Art, uh, from Latin America at the Museum of Modern Art, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Grove Encyclopedia of Latin American Art. With that, please join me in welcoming Thomas Cummins. Thank you so much for being here. Well, first of all, it's a true privilege to be with you all here in this place and at this time in our country's history. Uh, it's when I was asked to do this, I never faltered and said, of course, I'll do that. Uh, and there's two reasons. One, uh, as you'll see when I begin to talk about the role of Dumbarton Oaks, uh, is what that means for democracy. Uh, Dumbarton Oaks, when it's convened to Harvard, was done so at a time when democracy and the world was at risk. And I'll outline that here. Uh, and the other reason that I wanted to do this is I believe that in many ways Dunbar Noakes is one of Washington's best kept secrets. Uh, people from Washington, raised uh, here, often will ask, well, what is it? Uh, and so one of my missions as director has been to disseminate to both Washingtonians and people at Harvard who ask the same question, what is it and what are you doing there? So I'll give a brief history both of the place and uh, the uh, owners and patrons of Dumbarton Oaks. And just so to ameliorate any questions, why are there so many Dumbartons? Uh, because the first uh, stakeholder here was named Dumbarton. Uh, he, was, he was a Scot, and he was, in the 17th century, given a large tract of land where Georgetown is now. And that's why there's Dumbarton Street, Dumbarton House, Dumbarton Oaks, etc. cetera. Uh, but Dumbarton Oaks was originally, for our purposes here, the Georgetown home of... Robert and Mildred Bliss. It's now Harvard's multivaried humanities center here uh, in the heart of Washington, D.C. 
but it was bequeathed by the Blisses to Harvard in 1940. And the heart of this gift was the collection of art, uh, that is Byzantine art, pre-Columbian art, 19th century French art, and contemporary art, as well as architecture, and I'll talk about the fact that we have a tremendously varied and beautiful collection of architecture by really renowned architects, and uh, their library, which was formed over the previous 20 years. The Blisses bought the property and increased the amount of property uh, in 1920 and began to take down the Victorian house that was there, although part of the house uh, it still exists, and that's the oldest part of the house, which is the Angerie, uh, which was built in the beginning of the 18th century. And we have there in the Angerie, how many of you actually visited Dumbarton Oaks? <laughs> oh, good. So you may have been in the Angerie, which is, it has a, a, a vine that's growing inside. It's a beautiful room. That's the oldest room in the property. But that's also the oldest domestic plant in the United States. It was planted in 1826. And it grows from one corner of that room and then is spread throughout that room. So when you go in there, you think that you're looking at uh, multiple uh, iterations of a vine. It's a single plant, and we're very, very careful in taking care of it. Uh, but when they bought the property in 1920, they left that uh, and other parts, but then uh, Commission uh, McKee, Mead, and White, who many of you probably are not architectural historians, but th they were the pre preeminent American uh, architects of that period to begin to build uh, their house. But at the same time, they commissioned one of the great art, uh, landscape architects of the 20th century, Beatrix Ferrand. Uh, Beatrix Ferrand, uh, her, real, uh, her maiden name was Jones, of uh, keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, and literally, I'm sorry, that is, the, you know, that's the family. And she uh, had studied uh, in uh, Massachusetts uh, and she became uh, an intimate friend of Mildred Bliss, uh, and together they designed the gardens that are now one of the world's most famous gardens. Uh, and it's open to the public from, I think, two to five or six uh, every day except Monday. And we always get requests to open it longer, but we can't because we have to take care of it. Uh, and so we have the gardeners in there working uh, all day long. But the point is that all of this was conveyed to Harvard in 1940. And the Blisses, as I said, you know, had filmed the, the, filled these magnificent rooms with an abundance of modern pre-Columbian, uh, early modern European, Asian, and Byzantine works of art. Although Robert Bliss's passion was pre-Columbian. In fact, the first piece he ever bought in 1912 or 13 was an Olmec jade Piece. Now, you don't know who the Olmec are probably, but they are the mother culture of Mexico. Uh, and so uh, he always passionately was collecting this material. And in fact, just before he died in 1961, he had uh, one piece that he was contemplating adding to the collection. Uh, and that's why, in fact, I'm there, because uh, he certainly uh, was 
interested in pre-Columbian, and why? Well, in part because uh, he uh, graduated from Harvard, uh, one of his good friends, and you'll see why, who I'm talking about in a second, was Arthur Sachs uh, uh, of Goldman Sachs uh, family, but uh, he developed the great courses in museum and museum administration at Harvard, uh, and he really created most of the curators of the 50s and 60s, uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s in the United States, and he was a good friend of Robert Bliss, but Robert Bliss uh, uh, was a diplomat. Uh, he was a diplomat, he was the ambassador to Argentina in the 30s during World War I. He was in the diplomatic corps in Paris, and this is going to be important for why he conveyed Dumbarton Oaks to Harvard uh, in 1940, because he and his wife and uh, there's no secret, his wife, uh, they are stepbrother and stepsister. That is, his father married her mother. They grew up together. Uh, he always loved her, uh, and she resisted getting married to him for about 10 years and then finally said yes. Uh, and uh, they created this world uh, that was international, it was political, uh, but it was first and foremost a, a home for the humanities, and that's what it became. Uh, he, in 1940, the world looked somewhat not dissimilar to the world we're in now. Uh, and so it was conveyed to Harvard, and in 1942, Mildred Bliss made it painfully clear the intent of the gift in the letter to Paul Sachs, uh, who was, as I said, Robert Bliss's classmate at Harvard. And he was then director of the Fogg Museum. And she wrote, and I quote, if ever the humanities were necessary, it is in this epic of disintegration and dislocation. They had seen what had happened in Paris during World War I, and they were witnessing it all over again. And so their convening of this center that they built, this home, or this collection, and the uh, idea that the humanities was central to a world that would need it as uh, fascism took over and democracy was at risk, uh, was central. And they believed that government at that point was not stable enough to, or interested enough in the humanities to preserve it, to create it, to make it part of citizenship. And the Blisses deeply uh, believed in that. And so by turning over their collection of European paintings, pre-Columbian Byzantine art, as well as a library of rare books, uh, and the rare book library is, is extraordinary, especially because Mildred Bliss um, collected uh, books that had to do with the gardens. Uh, she uh, and Bunny Mellon competed with each other as to which would get the best copy. Uh, so there's two great uh, landscape architectural uh, libraries in the area. Uh, 
it was to buy the space, the time, and the resources to further humanistic research in the face of totalitarian non-democratic leaders and institutions. Or as Seneca wrote at the end of the era, the breath that we hold so dear will leave us. In the meantime, while we draw it, while we live among human beings, let us practice humanity. Let us not be a terror, a danger to anyone. End the quote. Their house and its magnificent gardens were thus intended to provide uh, a place, uh, a space, a time where scholars uh, could pursue their studies uh, in idyllic circumstances. And they understood the gardens as being that, a place of repose, a place that one could move away from the newspapers and what was going on in the world to actually compose what they uh, believed in. But before it became a home for the humanities, Robert Bliss, as I said, was a diplomat. And he offered Dumbarton Oaks as a neutral site for the allied nations to discuss the world's future in order to resist the barbaric upheavals of future inhuman, uh, inhumane instrumentality. And so what became known as the Dumbarton Oaks Conversations hosted the representatives of the United Kingdom, the United States, the Soviet Union, and China to begin discussions which would lead uh, to San Francisco and the creation of the United Nations. So Dumbarton Oaks really is the fundamental uh, origin of the United Nations. Most interestingly, the Soviets had to meet one day, and then the next day they would reconvene, and the Chinese would be there, and the Soviets would not. Uh, some things never change. Or it is as if the late Yogi Berra uh, was being quoted to say it's deja vu all over again in 2023. Dumbarton Oaks conversations, as I said, was the establishment of the United Nations, but all along the Blisses were deeply involved in creating culture, uh, not only as a space, but also uh, as patrons of the arts. And one of the great uh, parts of their interest was music out of Paris. Uh, and some of you must know that they were patrons of some of the great composers, composers of mid 20th century. Uh, the Stravinsky's Dumbarton Oaks Concerto that was commissioned uh, for their 30th anniversary. Uh, and Samuel Barber was commissioned. Uh, now I, others I've forgotten. And we still have concerts. We have eight concerts a year, chamber concerts. They're open to the public. They, you do not have to have uh, uh, seasons, you can buy individual tickets, but they do sell out. We have seats only for 80 people. It's intimate experience of music in the music room, the room where the United Nations was conceived. It's the same place. It's, it's full of history, but it's a beautiful room that they uh, commissioned and uh, brought actually parts, bits and pieces from Europe. Um, and their idea was that Dumbarton Oaks as an institution was the antithesis of the new barbarism as it appeared 
throughout the world and seems to be reappearing again. Uh, now, what is Dumbarton Oaks, aside from this collection of art uh, and architecture and gardens that people can visit? The museum is open to the public for free. We do not charge. And this is because the Bliss has not only left us this magnificent uh, land, this magnificent gardens, but when they died, because they, they wanted to have children, but they never did, uh, they left the entire fortune, which was a large fortune that was spread around the world in real estate as well as actions, uh, as an endowment to Dumbarton Oaks. That's why we can afford to offer these concerts, which we do not make money on. We do not make money on anything we do uh, other than the endowment. Uh, but what we do do is offer the grounds and the uh, libraries uh, and uh, to the public, but it is a research institute. From the very beginning, it was understood that it would be a haven uh, in the humanities, and it began immediately in the 50s to receive Soviet scholars who were leaving the Soviet Union, uh, and we also had uh, German scholars who had left during the Nazi regime. We continue that today. Uh, when the war with Ukraine broke out, because Kiev is Rus, and we needed to actually counter Putin's uh, information, disinformation, incredible disinformation about the relationship of uh, Kiev to Russia, to Byzantium, uh, we had a, uh, first of all, a uh, round table that was broadcast, and then we had uh, bi-weekly uh, Zoom conferences open to the entire world. We had people speaking out of bomb shelters uh, in Kiev. Uh, we had to do what we do best as historians and go back and say, no, this is not true. What Putin is saying is not true. Uh, and we've had to do the same again, unfortunately, with Armenia. We are very deeply involved in Armenian studies and the displacement that was taking, there, uh, taking place there. We had to do the same thing. And when Erdogan uh, reclaimed Hagia Sophia uh, as a mosque, we had to do that again because we had paid for the entire restoration of the mosaics in Hagia Sophia and I felt that it was incumbent upon us to give a history of Hagia Sophia as a Eastern Orthodox church, first and foremost, and then the history as transformation in 1542 after the conquest by the Turks, to then when Ataturk made it into a museum, and then Erdogan in the politics of Turkey today uh, re-established it as a mosque, and I can tell you that what has happened is a destruction of many of those mosaics. So we are uh, members in the humanities, but the humanities are critical, as the bliss is understood, to what we do today, because we know what happened yesterday. We know what history is. Uh, and so it uh, may seem 
reified, rarefied, should I say, not reified, well, maybe reified too, but uh, a rarefied place because it is a home to 50 residential scholars who are there from September until May. They're chosen by a board of uh, senior scholars. They come from all over the world. Uh, we house them, we feed them, and we give them the time to pursue, pursue their studies. In addition to that, we have another 70 scholars that come periodically as uh, either speakers or monthly uh, stipends so that they can use the libraries or study the collections. We have also then uh, exhibitions. We have a museum team that puts on uh, exhibitions that are not like exhibitions of the National Gallery. These are very specific uh, intellectual exhibitions. The last one was uh, Lasting Impressions, and what that was uh, was an exhibition about seals and coins from the Byzantine Empire. Now, for me, I thought this is going to be the dullest thing I've ever seen. It was uh, really tremendously intellectually and visually exciting. Uh, and that's because we have a tremendous team that understands their collections and understands how to present them to a public. We have, as I said, an incredible uh, body of architecture. Uh, McKeebian White did uh, our uh, main building as well as the greenhouse, beautiful greenhouse which we were restoring and is about to open up again. Uh, Robert Venturi did our library. It's a five-story library which you cannot see from the street. Uh, that means the siting there is uh, so, it's a very expensive place to build I can tell you because it's all downhill. Uh, but it is a uh, Venturi, uh, one of the great postmodernist architects. Uh, and the jewel in the crown, and literally it's a jewel box, is uh, Philip Johnson's uh, exhibition, a Wing for the Pre Columbian. Uh, those of you who know Philip Johnson's work, it, he, his own house in Connecticut, et cetera, it's, it's all glass and open. So he built. Uh, a Renaissance building that is completely modern. It's, it's the squaring of a circle. If you walk in, you're in a set of chambers that are round, but it's all based on a rectangular plan. That is the quintessence of uh, uh, architecture coming out of the theoretical architecture of the Renaissance, but it's made modern. And the, all of the walls, uh, except for the pillars, are glass. And so, all of these objects that are placed against the walls open up to the gardens. Now this is pre-Columbian material that was meant to be seen outside, meant to be experienced in the green or in the deserts, etc. And the building itself uh, is it's, it's his best building and it's a building that was built for a collection, uh, for its exhibit. Uh, and so uh, the architecture is both uh, 19th century, uh, really, uh, and uh, then 20th century. But we are now building a, a another building, uh, which will be called the Ferrand House, and uh, this is uh, to be used of an, in a new program, and that is uh, we want to engage with the community in Washington, but we want to engage not with you all. You can come but we want to engage with kids. 
with, with children who are in school who don't get this. And we want them to see and feel that they belong at a place like Dunbar Nose. I don't want anybody ever to walk in here and feel I don't belong here. Uh, and so we will uh, have two classrooms uh, of 35 uh, students each for prolonged experience in humanities, bringing things from our pre-Columbian collection, from uh, Byzantine collection, so it's a hands-on learning with objects and talking with people who are passionately involved in the gardens in Byzantine, uh, pre-Columbian, and other areas that we are invested in. That's Isabel Seldorf. She will be our first uh, woman architect. Uh, and it's a part of the program that I passionately believe in. So that uh, Dunmar Noakes is open to the public, but it serves to keep the humanities not only alive, but vibrant and looking forward. Uh, and it's important for us to do that uh, in a time when we are increasingly making our students feel that they need to have a vocational education, that what you do in the humanities is only answer to what it is to become a citizen of the United States. And I don't believe that. I believe that I, myself, my personal life, I had a choice when I was 21. I was offered a job at Wall Street, or I was offered a, job, uh, a position to go to graduate school. You know, there's two roads, and you pick one. And you pick them for a reason. Uh, I could have made more money, or I could have brought that place down like a house of cards. But I didn't. Uh, that is Wall Street. Uh, and I want people to think that they have choices in life, that they can pursue the things that drive them, not be driven by things. And this is what Dunbar Noakes can provide for people uh, in a way that there are very few centers of the humanities that can do it. And so the blisses have left us money, collections, uh, libraries, and a garden that I walk through with my dog when nobody else is there. Uh, and I feel really privileged to be there. And I feel privileged to be here in Washington at this time uh, to make sure that what I believe in, what Harvard believes in, uh, and what many of us take to heart uh, continues and we can offer a place, not only a refuge, but also a place of progress. Uh, and we have, I should end up by saying, that we continue to be a home for scholars uh, who are at risk, so that we have Ukrainian and Russian scholars with us now, who, Russian scholars who cannot go back to Russia because they oppose Putin, and scholars from Ukraine who have no place to go, uh, that is, to do their work. And so with that, I will stop and take questions about Dumbarton Oaks, and thank you all for uh, coming today, it's a beautiful day. Uh, I love the fall in Washington. I hate the summer, but. <laughs> yeah. In your education, Wayne, what age group? It's just.
K through 12. I didn't say that. K through 12. K through 12. Oh. So the, so the little, oh yeah, you want the little ones. You really do. My wife was a, a bilingual teacher, uh, K through three. I mean, that's, those are the best students. They are the best. The enthusiasm, the love. And you know, I have had more students, graduate students, uh, and really, uh, you know, first generation students who go on to do art history, not uh, something else. And I don't want to denigrate anything else, but, uh, and it's always, as a child, I was taken to a museum and I want this. This is something I want. So, yeah. Uh, are, you, are you comfortable with the uh, provenance of the collection come out of our archives? No, no museum director is, is comfortable with the provenance. And, and then could you say a few words about Mexico's a very aggressive repatriation policy and the general uh, movement of decolonization? Yeah, it's, it's very, that's a really uh, interesting question. I sometimes wish, God, I wish we didn't have a collection. <laughs> but but uh, I, it, it's very interesting. Dan Weiss, I just had dinner with Dan Weiss, who was the president of the Met. Uh, and he gave a talk just two days ago at Dumbarton Oaks on the ethics and at the ethical museum and, and uh, how we deal with these issues. I. And this is going to be a long-winded answer because I uh, was a member of the Committee of Repatriation at Harvard, how you go about it, because it's not as easy as just giving everything back. We have bronze, we have Benin bronze heads, et cetera, all of these things that we have. Uh, the biggest issue are human remains, uh, but I'll, I'll set that aside. Uh, so in terms of our collection, we have a number of pieces that the Blisses bought at a time when they were on the market uh, and uh, that now are suspect. Um, and what I mean by that is we have one piece that we are in negotiations with the family because it was a forced sale in 1933. It was bought by the Blisses in 1935 in New York. Uh, and we are talking to the family and we will do what's right by them, but they're very uh, amenable. We have uh, litigation with uh, Italy. I mean, you know, I'm perfectly open. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I don't care. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's a piece that was stolen or sold. And the, the, there's a real issue here about how things leave a country, whether you want it or not, and then all of a sudden you do want it after it's gone after 50 or 100 years. So there's one piece that's been gone for over 100 years. All of a sudden, Italy said, well, that was taken from the church, and we'll, and we'll give you something else. And I look at it and go, I don't want that. We don't even collect that. Uh, so, and then we have issues with Turkey on, uh, about a treasure that was really dug up. But... What's interesting is it was buried because the Turks were coming in. It's a Christian altar. So, I mean, it's, all of these things are very uh, complicated. Mexico uh, is perhaps the most aggressive. I, I wouldn't lend anything to Mexico because <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if it would come back. Uh, and, uh, it, and the problem there is exacerbated by the politics of Mexico right now. Uh, and I'm not going to go too much into that, 
but uh, there is, at, at the time that the budget of uh, Mexico's cultural wing is being annihilated, there is a political uh, campaign to reclaim things outside of Mexico because it looks politically good. It costs nothing. So, uh, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult situation in that regard. And one of the things that is great for the immigrant communities is to come and to see their cultures with all the others. And I, the most popular wing is the pre-Columbian and they are by and large Hispanic descendant students. So everything can go back, <laughs> but when it does, it will end up in a storeroom. I can tell you, because I know this. I mean, I know this for a fact, having dealt with this most. And I always, was always one about, you know, give back, give back. Uh, now I'm director of a museum, and maybe not. You know, you know it's always, it's, 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 it's a very interesting position to be put in, but uh, the, the, Short answer, which was not short, was it's a case-by-case -case kind of thing. Yeah. That said, we have set up a policy. Uh, and that means that at Harvard, so I cannot decommission or give anything back without going through uh, the corporation. The corporation, that, what that means is those are the trustees. Uh, Harvard has a different name for everything. You don't, you don't major, you have concentrations. Somebody else had a question. Yeah. Well, um, that whole beautiful area that Philip Johnson did for the Greek Columbian, what about the other Central American countries? Because they're in turmoil. So, I mean, Mexico, we just. We well, <laughs> I mean, uh, the, well, it, the question was about Mexico's very aggressive policy. So Peru does not have as uh, aggressive a policy at all. Uh, so Mexico claims everything that is out of Mexico. So uh, whether, when it, I mean, it could have left as a gift. There are uh, by, I mean, the history of Mexico is such that, that there was, Inca, I mean, Aztec nobility, that would send gifts uh, to Spain, Charles V, Philip II. You know, these were all negotiable gifts. They weren't looted, or, but Mexico claims those. So uh, there's the great headdress of Montezuma, which is not Montezuma's headdress uh, in Vienna. It's part of the Habsburg collection uh, that was given to, uh, well, it ended up in Vienna in the Habsburg collection. Uh, they claim that. Uh, now, you can claim it because it was produced in Mexico, but uh, it wasn't uh, stolen. It wasn't, you know, uh, it was given. Now, it was given under duress, I suppose, because, but uh, there are things that were not. I mean, so uh, it, 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 Mexico is the most aggressive that way. Yeah. I'm just curious about, you mentioned that diplomatic 
beginnings and conferences, which led to human rights. Um, I just wondered if that was um, continued in the sort of mission or vision, in a sense, even in the sort of cultural aspects of rights. Yeah. One thing we don't do is, it's not a venue for any politics, uh, and we don't have any events other than our own, but we do have events and symposia that deal with that. But, uh, and that was really the Bliss's interests and our interests as well. Uh, otherwise, you can't believe how many people want to have something at Dunbar and Oaks. Uh, and, uh, we don't need to do it, but we don't want to do it. We are first and foremost a research center in the humanities. Yeah. Um, in terms of like forward-looking art, like or forward-looking like issues in society, is there anything else that's or anything in that like? like oh, I, I'm glad there? I'm glad you asked that question. There's two things. One, we don't collect. To, to go to your point about we don't collect anymore. Uh, 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 we collect rare books. We occasionally will buy something that connects to our collection. So, for example, there was a, one of a pair of earrings. They got separated by a dealer, a Byzantine earrings. We bought the other part to, to complete them. But, and somebody's giving us a collection of pre-Columbian ceramics that predate UNESCO. The, uh, but we don't collect. But what we do, and I didn't say the other part of that new building is an artist studio. And we bring uh, an artist to do uh, work on campus. So we just had Hugh Hayden did an incredible piece. Uh, it was called The Briar Patch. Did anybody see it? It was on the North Vista. It was a series of school desks that were created out of uh, trees that were being cut down in New Jersey in the Pine Barrens. And the, what he did was create these 100 chairs, but the branches were never detached from the wood, so that the branches came out of the tree like this. And so you had, we lined them up, because the, the vista goes into the forest. What you probably don't know is that Dunbar Nooks uh, National Forest, that's behind Dunbar Nooks, belonged to the Blisses. And that was curated as part of the gardens. So you walked out of the formal gardens into the forest, which was curated. So all of those uh, pastures and all of those dells down there were all created by Beatrix Ferrand. Uh, and so the North Vista, that is, if you come in the front door, main entrance, this entrance then out, and you look straight into the forest down a a ha-ha uh, set, set of stair, uh, grass, so it looks like it's flat, but it's not, you gotta go downstairs. And he put those there. Uh, we had them facing away from the house, uh, and it was about education, it was about race, because it was called the Briar Patch. Uh, and so we have a Colombian artist who uh, we have negotiated with, who will be doing the next installation, it will be about the environment, carbon. Uh, he will be making uh, houses uh, out of carbon, be placed around in, in the gardens. So it's meant to interact with, so we, we do that, yeah. And we bought a house 
Another house that faces, uh, am I out of time? No, no, Okay, okay, because uh, I could go on and on. <laughs> uh, when I first became director, I bought this house. We haven't really done it yet because we're in the midst of a lot of construction. Uh, but as soon as the Farron house is ended, we'll put this online, uh, get it be online. And this will be a, uh, it's about 8,000 square feet, about six to eight bedrooms and uh, meeting rooms. And it will be for the humanities, for collaborative research. People who want to do collaborative research, and you have to understand the humanities, that's not something, it's very uh, much something that does in the sciences. I've done a lot of it, but humanities really doesn't do a lot of collaborative research. And this, uh, and Mellon is very interested in this, is getting people to begin to work together and, multiple projects, but there's nobody that has space for it. And uh, this is a great opportunity to rethink uh, humanities. And I'm gonna do this in relationship to the fact that Harvard has four other humanities centers. There's Itati in Florence. That was given to uh, Harvard by uh, Bernard Berenson. It's the most incredibly beautiful. We have beautiful places. I mean, I, uh, and then of course there's the Mahendra Center. And to really build towards the future and with the sustainability and the power that we have to, to really rethink what uh, humanity centers mean that way. So yeah, we're looking, there's two ways to look forward. One is to make sure that what we do is cost effective so that, you know, whoever comes 50 years, 100 years from now is not gonna say that was a mistake, you know, financially. Uh, and so that's part of the future. And the other is, the most important part, is to think forward about what do we need, where are we going, and why are we going there. Uh, yeah? Do you receive funding from major corporations at this point? So it's all bliss money. We Make get, yeah, yeah. We do, if I had to go out and raise money, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> uh, I mean, because there's enough to, I mean, I still teach, I still do my research. Uh, but um, we do get gifts. We get gifts. Uh, I, I, one of the great letters I opened up was a uh, list of all of what somebody owned and I, from a lawyer. And I said, what the hell is this? And uh, I called him and he said, well, did you get my letter? And I said, explaining this? And no. Uh, and it is somebody who loved the gardens. Uh, and who had gone there uh, and left us a substantial request to help with the gardens. And we have another guest. So people for whom Dunbarton Oaks is important uh, leave uh, things to us that way. Uh, but I do not have to deal with, uh, and what it means is I don't really have to answer to anybody. Uh, they can fire me, but I mean, uh, as long as they think I'm doing the right job, but I don't have to answer to outside pressures that way. Everyone, please join me in thanking.